0: Porcius Festus said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. It was the judgment of Porcius Festus, the Roman procurator of Judea. Around 59 AD, he was appointed to the same job that Pontius Pilate had when Jesus was around. On his arrival, he found there was a prisoner who had been languished for several years awaiting a fair trial, namely the Apostle Paul. Festus couldn't understand the Jewish charges that were levelled against him, and so when he was visited by his neighbouring king, Herod Agrippa, who was at least half-Jewish, he had Paul explain what the situation was. When Festus heard Paul say, that Jesus had risen from the dead and all the nations were being enlightened by this risen Jesus, he'd had enough. And he proclaimed in this loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. we're living in pretty uncertain and troubled times ourselves. Our world is being thrown into conflict through the war in the Middle East. And Christians in particular are being persecuted, robbed, tortured, crucified, beheaded there. Terrorism has made its travel unsafe and has come to our own land now and to our own city, hasn't it? And it brings changes to our freedoms as our governments try to come to terms with it so as to continue to create the kind of security and peaceful way of life that we've known for all our lives here. But we can never know what the future holds. We never know what the days ahead are for the world. Who would have thought 20 years ago that this was going to happen? We can never know really what the future holds for our children or what it holds for ourselves. And yet we have to make plans in life. We make plans for our future. Even though we can't control our future, we don't know if our plans are ever gonna work we don't know what the future is going to bring to us, but yet we've still got to make plans for our future. And so you'll see that we're going to look at the days ahead, although if you notice the outline, we're not going to get to the days ahead until point six of the talk. So I set the question for you now, and you've got to keep listening for through six points to get the right to where we're ever going to come to the answer to the question for the days ahead for you. I'm going to start, though, talking about the days ahead by taking us right back again to Porcius Festus, for he wasn't the only one to think that Paul was mad. The judgment of the Corinthian Christians was much the same. Writing to the Christians in Corinth, Paul had to defend himself against all manner of accusations, and so he says in the text that we're looking at tonight, for if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind... It's for you. Paul thought, people thought rather, that this man, this missionary, this apostle Paul, was mad. He was beside himself. Not in his right mind. And of every standard of this world, you would have to say that Paul lived a fairly mad life. You think you're busy. You think you've got troubles. You need to check out the apostle Paul. For by the judgment of normality, you would condemn him as an extremist who had lost his sense. When you hear of all his trials and his tribulations, of his beatings and his torture, of being shipwrecked several times, of being imprisoned frequently, of being stoned to death, of being left for dead, of, of being whipped five times... You'd have to say, please don't let my children become missionaries. You'd have to say, that's not a career trajectory that I would like to have. It's one totally mad lifestyle. Why does he keep going when clearly nobody wants him to and everybody's keen to stop him in the most violent forms? So how does Paul justify his actions? How does he justify himself? And there are two justifications he gives in this passage. One, if he's mad, it's for God. And two, if he's sane, it's for you. Being mad for God isn't something that he's commending or even believing. But he's doing what God told him to do. And if this means that the world sees him as mad, so be it. I'm doing what God told me to do. For it's far better to be thought mad by a mad world and do the will of God than thought sane by a mad world and be in rebellious disobedience against God. God's not mad. (laughs) If you're doing what God says, the world may think you're mad, but it may be The world's mad. And so, anyway, clearly he thought he wasn't mad. He thought he was in the right mind. And if it is his right mind, he says, I'm in my right mind for you. That's what he told the Christians in Corinth. For all this suffering, this beating, this lifestyle of danger, all this hard work and the sacrifice he was making was done for them was an expression of his unselfish love for them. He was laying down his life for them. Of course he could have lived in comfort back in Palestine or Tarsus where he grew up. Of course he could have been a a well-known scholar. He was a leader amongst his own generation. He was quite a famous up-and-rising leader of his people and he could have comfortably lived in those circumstances, but he didn't. Why? For them. But how can laying down your life for others be rational, be in your right mind? I mean, in a time of war, it's possible that the same thing to do is to lay down your life for others. That's, that's a permissible thing to do in war. That's sensible. Or in a moment of, of danger and tragedy, you may probably lay down your life for somebody else. But even then... Wisdom teaches, you be the one to run for help. That's what my wise mother taught me. She taught me two things about surfing. One, always keep a fat man between you and New Zealand. (laughs) So she taught me. The second one was, if ever there's trouble, you be the one to run for help. That's really good advice, you see. Because you're doing something worthwhile, aren't you? You're not being a coward. You're not being hard and ruthless. You, you, you're helping. You be the one for running for help. But, you know, the bloke who runs for help never actually drowns or gets into difficulty himself, does he? My mother knew what she was about. Keep my children alive. So, fat men between me and New Zealand and run for help. When I go surfing these days... I find it very hard to find anyone fat enough to qualify. <laughs> and I often find myself as the fat man between New Zealand and the other little children. But my mother's not around to instruct me anymore on this matter. You may lay down your life for somebody else, but to do it rationally, to, be, to make that a sensible life choice, it has to be extreme circumstances, doesn't it? As a way of life, as a choice for a career, and to to do it as a lifestyle, well, who trains their children to spend their lives sacrificing themselves for others? Paul's explanation of why he did it was because he was controlled by love. You see his expression in the text, the next part of our text here tonight, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. There is a sense in which his actions were controlled. He was compelled. He was constrained. It was not something over which he felt a real degree of freedom. It was something that he... It wasn't something he could just take it or leave it, as he felt. There was something that was hedging him in, constraining him, controlling him. You know, like watching the animals going up the race to be put into a truck. There's nowhere else for them to go. They can't go to the right, they can't go to the left. There's a fence that is closing ever, ever smaller, so there's only one place that they can go. He was hedged in straightened until he completed the task this was a voluntary forced to do activity what is it that controlled him like this he said it was the love of christ for if we are beside ourselves it's for god if we're in our right mind it's for you for the love of christ controls us there was something about the love of christ which Compelled him to do what he was doing so that he could do no other. He had to act because of this love of Christ. Not his love for Christ, but Christ's love for him compelled him. Do you know this love of Christ? Do you know Christ's love? For you in your life? Is this a compelling driving force, a motivator for your life? This awareness of Christ's love for you personally? Do you know the love of Christ that has compelled you to take actions that the world would think are mad? They look at you and say, why on earth does he do those things when you know you do them because you know the love of Christ? Do you know Christ's love for you like that? What is this love of Christ that can get people to do such extraordinary things? For Paul wasn't alone. He was one of thousands of people whose lives have been marked out by by extraordinary exploits that they will tell you come from the love of Christ controlling them. Exploits that the world at the time thought were madness themselves, although interestingly later on in history people think they're wonderful. But at the time they were all thought to be mad. Lord Shaftesbury, who had a campaign to help the poor against the whole problems of the urban poor of the 18th, 19th century, the terrible times with little boys being put up chimneys as chimney sweeps of, of factories that have appallingly abused people. He was thought to be mad, but the love of Christ drove that man to change the laws of Britain, and not only Britain, but the whole of the British Commonwealth, or the empire as it was then, or, or William Wilberforce in his campaign against the slave trade, who changed the economy of the whole world, but was thought to be completely mad. A wealthy man who could own slaves, who fought for the freedom of slaves. Or Livingstone opening up the whole of Africa. Or, or Florence Nightingale, creating nursing from the Crimean War. <laughs> We're back at war in the Crimea. But 100 years, 150 years ago, that war, which was so barbaric that saw people just left for dead, who could be nursed to life. And she went and. And the man who was there, a Calvinist Christian man, he was there to preach the gospel from Switzerland. And his work, of course, started the Red Cross. But he was there to preach Christ, because the love of Christ got him there and founded the whole thing that today everyone thinks, "Oh, the Red Cross, that's just normal, that's just sensible, that's, that's what should happen, that's a wonderful organisation. But it was started because there was a man who knew the love of Christ, whom the world viewed as mad, a banker who gave up banking to help people. Gladys Aylwood looking after orphans in China and being rescued rescuing orphans from the hands of the communists in the the revolution that was taking place in the middle of the 20th century. There's this little woman who was so concerned for the children that the world was forgetting and who rescued them and gave her life to that. Why? She knew the love of Christ. Well put it in Australian history. Richard Johnson I don't know if you know much about Richard Johnson, but you see, here he was. He gave up the comforts of being a Georgian English parish clergyman in order to become the chaplain of a prison at the other end of the world. I mean, most of the people who came out in the First Fleet came out because they were prisoners or because they were soldiers sent to look after the prisoners. Hardly any came out freely, freely. Voluntarily. But he did. Why? Well, because he was controlled by another force. Not by the government, not by the prison guards, not by the superior officers. No, the love of Christ drove him to come out and care for the soldiers who didn't want him and the prisoners who didn't care for him the ends of the world, it was. To some people it still is, but that's all right. We've beaten them at rugby. (laughs) And cricket, and... Anyway. And it's not just in the past. See, I could fill the evening with stories of men and women who have left the comfortable prosperity of a professional life in Australia, Because they discovered the compelling love of Christ. See, here are a couple of with their law degrees. I mean, a law degree is today's recipe for writing money, isn't it? For comfortable lifestyle. But they left it all to preach Christ to students overseas, raising their family in a small little apartment without even owning a motor car. Or here are a couple of doctors. Again, in our world's sanity, this is the ideal way to get ahead, isn't it? Oh, what a wonderful joy to be able to say, my son the doctor, my daughter the doctor, and they married together. They... But they gave up Australia. They gave up the comforts of Australia. They gave up medicine in order to proclaim Christ to students in Japan. It's not just in the past, and it's not just the Apostle Paul. All down the centuries, all around the world, people have discovered this love. Do you know the love of Christ that will motivate and control the way you live like that? Well, let me tell you about this love of Christ. For what is this love of Christ that so motivates people? See, Paul explains it here in this passage in terms of what he concluded. That's how he explains it, you see. I read again, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. See, the love of Christ is not particularly a feeling. It's not a sense of being overwhelmed and carried away in some rapture. The love of Christ is not anti-intellectual. It's, it's not insanity, it's not irrational or even irrational. It's something that you can think about, something you can know. It's something that, that you can actually conclude. It's something that having thought through the whole issue, Paul came to a conclusion about it. It's about a conclusion that many people have come to an intellectual conclusion persuaded by the evidence. It's a judgment that he has made. It's it's about a conviction that he has. It's the conviction that one died for all and therefore all have died. It's a funny thing when you first hear it, but that's what's said. Look, I read again. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. Now let's take those ideas one at a time because now we're moving into something slightly strange when you first hear it so that we can understand this love of Christ that so motivates, change, and transforms people. He concluded that one has died. It, it, that's just a brute fact. There is a, it's very hard to deny the, the brute fact Jesus was crucified. Only the Muslims reject this fact. The Quran explicitly denies that Jesus was crucified. They say that Jesus was not crucified, did not die that way. Now, both can't be right. If Islam is true, Christianity is false. If Christianity is true, Islam is false. They both may be false, Jesus never lived, but they both can't be true. That's an impossibility. And so when people say all religions teach the same thing, you know they're also wrong, don't you? Because these two deny each other, absolutely contradict each other. All religions can't be right, because Islam says Jesus didn't die, Christianity says Jesus did die. And for Christianity, the death of Jesus is absolutely central to the message. So if Christianity is right, Islam's is wrong. If Islam's is right, Christianity's is wrong. They both can't be right, and therefore people who think all religions teach the same don't know what they're talking about. That's why they get elected to Parliament. <laughs> Here's the... Oh, that was naughty. I shouldn't say that. There are some very nice, fine Christian people in Parliament and we've got to pray for them that they will be wise at the moment. That's why they're journalists. Now, what about you, though? Are you convinced that Jesus was crucified? I mean, the evidence seems overwhelming. All the early Christian and non-Christian sources that we have say that he died by crucifixion. Josephus, the Jewish historian, Tacitus, the Roman historian, they tell us that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. They weren't Christians, but that's the story they tell. That's the history as they knew it. And the New Testament writers in page after page, book after book, speak of his death by crucifixion. To cut the crucifixion out of the Bible is to turn the Bible into confetti. But what about you? Are you persuaded that he died? Then there's the second part of Paul's conclusion, that he died for all. See it there in number verse 15 there? And he died for all. Now, those two little words, they're quite different. This isn't a brute fact. He died. I mean, he either did or he didn't. He died. This now is the interpretation of his death. We never interpret the Bible because the Bible is the interpretation it is interpreting the death of Jesus at this point. He died for all. Now, why did he die? It wasn't because he had cancer. It wasn't that he had a car accident, nor was he caught by in the political machinations of first century Roman Palestine. He died for us. That is, he voluntarily laid down his life for us. It wasn't taken from him but given by him. He could have fled. He could have stayed away from Jerusalem. He could have called on his heavenly father to rescue him. He could have retired into the desert. He could have given up preaching and gone back into carpentry. But he intentionally went to Jerusalem to be killed. And he did this, we're told, for us, for all. How did he die for us. He died as our representative and substitute. Now, what does that mean? To be a representative means that he died on our behalf. You know, when people play cricket for Australia, when they play football for Australia, when they wear the green and gold, they're representing us. We're not playing, but they represent us, so we are playing. You know, when two other nations are playing, well, they're playing. But when the Australians are playing, we're playing because they're our representatives. We even call it representative football, don't we? Representative cricket. Uh, They represent us. But not only was he a representative, he was also our substitute. You also get those in football, don't they? That is, there's a bunch of fellows sitting on the bench who would like to play, but they can't play because there's only a certain number of people on the field at any time. And then when someone on the field gets injured, they take him off and they put a substitute in his place to play where the other man was playing. As more than a representative, he's not representing him. He's his substitute. Jesus dies for us as our representative and as our substitute. He dies on our behalf, in our place. For the Bible makes clear that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus didn't sin, so there was no reason for him to die. We deserve to die because we've all sinned. He doesn't deserve to die because he didn't sin. But he did die. He didn't die as penalty for his own sin. He died the penalty for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. That's why he was dying. For us as our representative, for us as our substitute. In my place, he took my death and my punishment of his sin. And so the third part of the conclusion is the, The conclusion of the conclusion. Let's look again here, you see. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. But he died for all, and therefore all died. If he died my death for me, then I have died already. My penalty has already been paid for. My death has already happened. In his death, I died so that I no longer have to die as a penalty for my sin. See how that last conclusion at the end of verse 14 there, therefore all died, pushes the logic all the way. If he has died for me, then I have already died. I'm no longer then guilty in the presence of God. I'm forgiven. I'm not pure, perfect. I'm forgiven. One of the things you've got to do to be forgiven is to do something wrong. If you've never done anything wrong, you can't be forgiven. Well, I've done the wrong. You have too. So we've, we've, we've ticked that box, right? Done the wrong thing. Now, how do you get forgiven? Well, there's nothing you can do to get forgiven, is there? The person you've wronged has to forgive you. You can't insist on forgiveness. You can't organise forgiveness. You can't force forgiveness. You can't buy forgiveness. It's only if the person you've wronged chooses to forgive you that you can be forgiven. And God chooses to forgive those who come in the name of Jesus, for the penalty has been paid by him. Which means I'm now forgiven. Redeemed is the word Purchased out of my slavery to sin. I'm bought with a price, the price of his only son. I'm pardoned. Why would God do such a thing? Why would Christ do such a thing? Not because I deserve it, but because he loved me and wanted to spare me of the death I deserve. This is the love of Christ Jesus, the love of Christ for me, that he would voluntarily give his life for me, his enemy, the person who didn't care, rejected him, despised him, was doing the things he doesn't want me to do, that he would give his life for me so that I may avoid the death I deserve and enjoy the eternal life he wins for me, that he does that for me for no other reason than he loves me. Once I've understood that, once I've concluded that, once I've grasped that, then I am grasped by his love. I'm overwhelmed by his love. And so the third part of the conclusion, therefore all have died, pushes us even further. For his death is our sanity. For now that I'm forgiven, and I know that I'm forgiven, now that my life and eternity are certain, I'm able to relate to God. Not out of fear of punishment, the punishment's already happened, but out of the love of forgiveness. It changes the way you relate. Let me help you understand this one. It's very simple, really. Some many years ago, I was caught in a public debate on the subject of, is whaling murder? And so, not knowing anything about the subject, I went to the local library and borrowed some books on whaling, or one book particularly on whaling. And I found out all about whales, and I could give you a whole lecture on whales, but you really wouldn't want to hear it. And so I went off into the debate and... Uh, It poured with rain and hailed that night and hardly anybody turned up and so it was a dud of an evening if ever there was one. Anyway, sometime later I got a note from the library about the book that I hadn't returned, which I had returned. But they said I hadn't returned, so I looked around my office and I wasn't there, so... I said, no, no, I'll ignore the book. I said, you know, if, you, if you've returned it, there's no point to do anything. So I thought, I've returned it, and so there's no point doing it. I threw the note away, and they sent me another note. and I said, no, no, I've returned this book. And they sent me another one. So I rang them up and said, no, i returned that book. And they said, well, haven't got it. And I said, well, I've returned it. And so about three years later, when my, one of my children was in and I studied, they said, what's this book here, Daddy, on whaling and whales? And I thought oh yeah there's that there's that book there isn't it and then a little while later this child said daddy uh, it's got a library book card in here this isn't your book you know children have got this capacity for kind of putting their finger on the truth that you don't want to know about and I said oh yes yes well I I must return that sometime just put it back at the moment dear. I'll get around to it and and then uh, you know six months later uh Another little voice came to me, um, that book's still here, Dad. And I said, yeah, yeah, well, I'll get around to it. And I thought, it really wasn't... It wasn't a very good library. You know, it's a crummy library. It was just down the road and wasn't many books that were worthwhile. The only one book on Whaling and I had it anyway. So, I mean, there was nothing... <laughs> ..really to go there. And there's no need to go there, really, was there. So I didn't bother. And finally, after some years... I realised I really had to return this book. Can you work out the kind of fine that you're involved? <laughs> I mean, it was more than just the cost of the book by that stage, I could have bought half the library by the amount that I owed by that stage of the game. So I go back very shamefaced, and, uh, you know, this crummy little library and went to the librarian and said, oh, I'm sorry, but uh, I thought I'd return this, but I found it and uh, I didn't say what was the truth. My daughter had found it several times over the last few years. I uh, found it and I want to return it and I'll have to pay the fine. And she looked at it and said, well, this has been out for a long, long time. And I said, yeah, yeah it, has, it has been lost for a long time, you know. And uh, she said, uh, well, the the fine, uh, she said, well, I mean, you couldn't charge that. She said, we're just glad to get the book back, you know. If you pay, it was a minimal fine, then uh, we're really glad, thank you for bringing it in. So I paid my $2 or whatever it was. (laughs) And uh, while I was there, I looked around and, gee, it was a good library. You know, there were all kinds of really worthwhile things there that... I thought I must come here more often. I spent some time searching out other books. I didn't borrow any. I thought this would be a little touchy at the moment, but especially with the same woman standing there glaring at me. But I thought I must come back here because it was such a wonderful library. You see, when I was guilty, I couldn't face the building. I wouldn't even go in there. I wouldn't have anything to do with it. And I started to say all kinds of things that were completely untrue, that were negative about it, all of which was rationalising my own immorality, and stupidity, but once I was forgiven, pardoned, the penalty paid, a free man, I could enjoy the library once more, couldn't I? I wanted to go, there are all kinds of good things. When I am guilty before God, I don't like God, and all those rules and regulations he has, they're dreadful, aren't they? And That religion he's organised, that's stupid, but when I find myself fully Completely forgiven because the the fine, which was far greater than I could ever pay, has been totally paid for by him already. Then you know, God's really nice. He's terrific, very powerful, and very wise, and terrifically helpful. And I can visit him regularly, and you know, he even lets me call him Dad. I mean, he's wonderful. You see the impact, see the change, the transformation, the motivation that comes when you understand the love of Christ. That love of Christ, which is that one died for all and therefore all died. That's the love which creates a new sanity, a new understanding that is completely different. I don't relate to God out of fear of punishment, but out of the love of forgiveness. Now the punishment's been paid, I'm free. I'm free to serve him and his world. I'm free to lay down my life for him and for the salvation of others. I'm now free to live no longer for myself, but for him. This is the sense of being loved, that people long for. The world craves for love, but don't know where to find it. This is, this is the sense that I matter, because I matter to God. I matter to God so much that he sent his son to die for me. This is a sense of safety. We're safe even against death, for it gives a sense of significance and security that means we can live our life And build our lives positively because we know we are building on the solid foundation of God's love, of Christ's love for us. But it also means that we will do things now that the world would consider mad. That we'll give up our career for the sake of the mission field. That we'll volunteer our time and efforts for other people's benefits. That we'll stick out at hard and unloving marriage that anybody else would walk away from. That we'll raise our children to honour and serve the Lord. That we'll live for Christ who loved us and gave his life for us. It's not because we're mad, it's because we've finally become sane. It's because with Paul we've come to the rational conclusion that one died for all and therefore I have died already in the death of Jesus. And so you see how this gives a whole different take on the days ahead. You capture it in that final verse, verse 15, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Notice the assumption of that verse. We were previously living for ourselves. Those who live might no longer live for themselves. And of course we were. That's what everybody does. That's the normal way of living. That's the sane way of life. Karaoke bars around the Western world. What is the most popular song? That people sing? What is the one always requested that people want sung for them in the clubs? I did it my way. I had my ups, had my downs, there were good times, there were bad times, but the thing that makes it right was I did it my way. That's normality, that's sanity in a mad world. Everybody doing their own thing. How can society work? How can your family work if everybody does their own thing, their own way? But that's what the world is. And you can say, No, Philip, no. I don't do it for myself, I do it for my children. And I say, Yes, but notice whose children you do it for your own. Your children are just an extension of yourself at that point. You're not doing it for other people's children. It's your own children. For many of us, we do it for our own children because we've given up trying to get anything out of life for ourselves. Only the next generation is the way in which we'll live. I can't play cricket for Australia, but my children... No, they're too old too. My grandchildren, one of my grandsons, he'll play cricket for Australia. And so I live my life through him. I'm living my life through him. But understanding Jesus' love, understanding Jesus' death, re-motivates us, changes the whole direction of life, no longer living for myself, but now for him. For when you live for him, who is truly God, not for yourself, not for your own family, your own children. When you're living for Him who died for us and was raised again, then what He wants you to do is to live for others. That's so how it changes everything. The Creator, the Redeemer of the world, who now sits at the right hand of God, ruling over the whole universe, who will judge one day not only the living but the dead, when you're living for Him, when you do what He wants you to do, then You will do it the way he did it too. You will lay down your life for others as he laid down his life for you. And when you lay down your life for others, when that's now what my life is going to be about, all the hundreds of decisions I make about life get changed. And so the young doctors give up medicine... And go to Japan to explain to to Japanese students about the gospel of Jesus and the love that he has. And so the lawyers give up being lawyers and making all the money that they do in order to go off to Europe to explain to French people about the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. And so people's choices in life change completely for their motivation for living has changed completely. (laughs) The Apostle Paul, just in a chapter before this, said, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. The Greek word actually is slaves, for Jesus' sake. We go through life proclaiming Jesus. He's Lord. But if he's Lord, then I'm his slave. And if I'm his slave, then what he's told me to do is to serve you. For as he's told you to serve others. And so Paul wasn't an extremist fanatic. He was a normal Christian. who had a fairly abnormal life, I'm relieved to say, but he was a normal Christian because he laid down his life to save other people. That's why people teach Sunday school week in, week out, year in, year out, for nothing. That's why the church doesn't have taxation. The church asks people just give voluntarily. The treasurer, whichever party they're in, in parliament, would love to be able to say to Australian population, just give whatever you think is appropriate. That will be enough for our government to function. They can't do that because Australian citizens live for themselves and so therefore they're always trying to avoid tax. Christian churches can do that because the people here know the love of Christ and want to share it with others. And so we'll share generously of our means without any prescription and without any force because we're compelled by the love of Christ. And so the choices of life, little choices, like how much money you put in an offertory on a Sunday morning. Big choices. Where you're going to live and who, what job you're going to do, who you'd marry, how you raise your children. All driven and motivated by the love of Christ. But if you haven't got that, if you haven't got the love of Christ, you don't know about the love of Christ, there's no point putting on the Christian behaviour. It doesn't work doesn't make sense it is madness if you do know the love of Christ then there's no point living the way the world lives (laughs) because it's mad it's a mad mad world and no one knows how to fix it but Jesus Christ has fixed me has he fixed you well I've got to lead in prayer and then we're going to go question time is that right? Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love and for his love, that he willingly accepted your commission to lovingly lay down his life for us, that as our representative and as our substitute, he would bear the penalty for our sin, paying fully for it and offering Forgiveness, pardon, and salvation to us sinners. We thank you for this, Father. We praise you for the Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that each one of us here this night might have that same conclusion that Paul had, that same understanding of one dying for all and therefore all dying that we, with the Apostle Paul, would no longer live for ourselves, but motivated, controlled, constrained by this love of Christ, we might live our lives for others. And so, Heavenly Father, we do help us not only to have this redirection of life, but the wisdom to know how to put this new direction into practice, In the big decisions of life and in the little ones, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.